Well, hello, Pastor Matt here. Just want to take a moment to say thank you for tuning in to this message. We here at New Life Baptist Church hope that in making these resources available to the public, that we'll help to edify the body of Christ at large, and that you personally will increase in your knowledge of God, leading to a deeper love for Him. We're going to be doing uh, verses 7 through 12 this morning. First John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. I hope you're there. This is the word of the living God. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time together. Thank you, Lord, that... Uh, You have shown your love to us this way. Lord, we want to confess at the outset that we don't love this way. So I pray, Lord, that your word would be unfolded to us this morning and that you would give us light to understand what it is that you're calling us to and how to see your love in a greater, uh, greater degrees so that we would grow in our love for one another in the same way that you loved us, Lord. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing before you today. In your holy name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. The title for our sermon today is Love One Another. I know, really, really well thought out title, isn't it? But it obviously comes from the very first sentence of our text this morning, love one another. Now, it needs to be said at the outset that obviously John, all throughout this letter, is repeating himself. Obviously, this is not the first time that we have come across this command to love one another in this um, study of 1 John. He kind of seems to say something and then he changes courses and then he chases a rabbit trail and then he comes back to what he started. So we understand that we are reading something and looking at something today that we have already, in a way, looked at. But the interesting thing about what John is doing here is that whenever he circles back, he always adds another layer of understanding and another depth of meaning to what he's been writing. So let's not be distracted by the fact that, oh, geez, we're talking about love again. Because how would many of you know that that would automatically be the wrong attitude 
about love. Oh, geez, here we go, talking about love. If that's your heart, please listen this morning to John's command to love one another. There's just a bit of a story that I thought of. It's a real short story. Um, Obviously, the command to love one another is something that we have been looking at, something that we understand as believers. But oftentimes, we don't really know what that's supposed to look like or how to really uh, practically apply that to our lives. We understand what we've always grown up to know love to be. We understand what other people look like when they love. And so we kind of muddle through our life just loving, learning little pieces of love from one another, from our family, and so on and so on and so forth. But oftentimes the picture of love in our minds is a completely distorted version of what love is prescribed to be through the scriptures. Here's an example. Uh, Many of you know that we have two little dogs. One of them is a growing puppy. He's getting much bigger than the older dog. And they play and they play and they play and they play. And the younger one is Spurgeon. The older one is Pippa. And she's really small. But she's a feisty little dog. Don't be misled. Do not be deceived, brethren. She is a feisty dog. And Spurgeon is a stubborn dog. So she often nips him and he cries and says, Oh, well, I don't care. Let's keep playing. Well, sometimes the play gets so rough that Gabby mentioned the other day, she asked me with all the sincerity in her wonderful heart. She looked at me and said, But they do love each other, right? I thought it was so funny because you look at these dogs out there in the yard and they're attacking each other and they're growling at each other and they come at each other with both mouths open and they're, they look like they're fighting. But with dogs, that's what play looks like. I wonder, though, how many times people look inside of the church and say, is that what love is supposed to look like? They're coming at each other with mouths open, ready to devour one another Surely that's not what love is supposed to look like. We look like dogs fighting in the yard sometimes. So we want to look at some examples from our text this morning of, of what this is supposed to look like. John, John opens up with his, his seemingly favorite word, beloved. Beloved. This is a term of endearment. So he's not coming down on them with a hammer. He's, he's speaking to them in a very personal way. Beloved, let us love one another. It has been said, and this is just uh, maybe folklore, but it has been said that um, John, the apostle in his old age, uh, that he would have to be carried to the front to teach and that he would just be muttering under his breath, love one another, love one another, love one another. Love one another. And this was the heartbeat of John. This is what John is is saying that God is, that God is love. And who else has seen greater manifestations of God's love than someone who walked with Christ? He saw the crucifixion. He saw the resurrection. He saw the love of God on full display. And now he's here telling us, about it and how we are supposed to act in light of this love. Beloved, let us love one another. Why? For love is from God. 
And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. We see right away that we display whether or not we are born again, whether or not we have truly come to know God's love, how? By our love for one another. Now we do need to say at the outset that you and I love imperfectly. We will not be very good at this. Oftentimes we will fail and stumble. I think Brother Art said it best, that we step on each other's toes. This happens often, especially whenever we are dealing with people in a closed area who are all sinful people, who are all learning, who are all at different levels of maturity. We're going to step on each other's toes in various ways, and sometimes we're not going to realize what we're doing. And guess what? Satan jumps right in and uses those moments of unintentional offense to divide a church and destroy lives. It's a tale as old as time. It always happens this way. It always happens in churches, especially small churches, small congregations, because they can't, a smaller congregation can't withstand a fracture. There's very few people here, right? You can't withstand a big fracture in the body when there's not a very, it's a small body. And Satan loves to pounce on that. And that's why all throughout the New Testament and certainly throughout 1 John, we're seeing this command, guys, love one another. You've got to love one another. You've got to love each other. Okay, John, but, but what does this look like here? John shows us here that, that God is love. Verse 9, anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. What a a powerful statement this is, that God is love. See, so many times we we say, like, we sang a song that God is good. And amen, that's an absolutely true statement. But sometimes we think that God is good because God does good things. But that's not true. God is good because God is good. Therefore, He does good things. And it's the same thing with God's love. We think that God is love means that God acts in a loving way and that's what makes Him love. No. God already is love. He is the essence of love. Without God, there is no love. And therefore, God acts in a loving way. Everything that God does is loving. Everything that God does is loving. You want proof? Look at the cross. He sent his own son. Think about it. To be beaten, bloodied, and bruised. To pour out his wrath upon him. And as it says in Isaiah, that it pleased the father to crush his own son. And that was the most loving act in human history. We've never known greater love than that. Because of what it accomplished. It wasn't the fact that Jesus was beaten. It's what his scars represented. It wasn't the fact that he merely died. It's what his death represented. Because God is love. So he's teaching us here about the nature of God. That God simply is love. So 
we would do well then to get our definition of what love is from who? From God. It wasn't a trick question, I promise. From God. If God is love, who better to tell us how to love and what love looks like and what love doesn't look like and how to operate in a manner that is loving if not God? John shows us that no one has ever seen God, but when we love like Him, we display the characteristics of God to a watching world. That is the call of the Christian's life. So then what does God's love look like? We're going to spend most of our time today looking at five characteristics of the love of God from our text. This is not an exhaustive list. You could probably examine verses 7 through 12 and find more, in which case that's fine. But I am long-winded, so we're going to stop at five, okay? And the church said amen, hallelujah. Five characteristics of the love of God. Number one, God is love, so he sacrifices. Let's look at verse 9. Anyone who does not love does not know God. I'm sorry, that was uh, verse verse 9. In this... In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Notice what he says. In this, in God sending his son into the world, this is how the love of God was made manifest. In other words, it was shown to us. It was made visible to us. It, wasn't, it became more than just an abstract idea. It literally took on flesh and bone. This is how God shows His love for us, that He gave His Son. You all know John 3.16, that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. This is how God displays His love to the world, is by sacrifice sacrificing. Think of that for a moment. The God of the universe, the sovereign of all, is sacrificing for people like you and like me. We were watching this movie that takes place in space. I love space movies. And it was just so profound how there there are five people or four people in this space shuttle and they carry all of human life. They're, they're attempting to go to another planet to find a planet that they can inhabit because earth is passing away. And here they are. This is all of the hope of humanity in this little tin box. And they show this scene where it's flying by Saturn. And you can barely see this little speck of a shuttle next to this giant planet, Saturn. And I just thought, wow, this is all of humanity. This is all of human life. Of course, it's a movie, okay? Don't judge me. But the, the, the example still stands, does it not? We aren't even the biggest planet in our entire solar system. We are so insignificant compared to the grand story of human history, yet God sacrificed for us? That is just absolutely incredible. That is unbelievable. 
We so often speak of this greatest event in history as though it were just something else that happened. Oh yeah, on Christmas we celebrate that Jesus was born and God sent his son into the world. He died on a cross. And that's the story of Christianity. Yay. You want to go to Brian's? And that's it. And we move on. But shouldn't these words jump off the page to us? That God sent His only Son into the world? The the infinite, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-sufficient, holy, righteous, I-need-nothing-to-survive God sent His Son into the world that He created. As a mind-bending thing to even begin to grasp. How does God, who is spirit, inhabit a body? Incarnation itself is astounding. But further than that, we know that Jesus didn't just come for a nice stroll, or just to visit, or just to check in, or even to come and be king and treated like royalty. None of those things happened, did they? He was born that he would die. He lived a sinless life that he might bear the weight of your sinfulness. He lived a life perfectly pleasing to the Father so that the Father would pour out his wrath on him. He died that we might live. Notice as well that John reminds us that God sent his only son into the world. So it wasn't as though he had an overabundance of children in heaven and said, "Ah, I'll pick you. Go, Johnny boy, go save the world. It was his only son. There was one son in the perfect love of the Trinity between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. There was one son to send. And they made this covenant in eternity past that said, yes, I will go and I will die for them. My son, I will send you to die for them. And I will pour my wrath upon you so that they can be saved. And God the Son said, yes, Father, I will do as you please. And he came and lived this life of sacrifice for us. Not only did he step down from heaven into the world, but he also humbled himself into the likeness of man. He was born in a very normal inn to very normal parents. In other words, he didn't come into the world to live this life of luxury. He didn't have this grand entrance into the world. No one would have thought anything special of this baby. He lived a life where he was despised by many. Even people who followed him would often leave him high and dry. People who he healed, people who he performed miracles for, He was a man acquainted with sorrows and grief who then died the most gruesome death that we could possibly imagine. But with every punch and every slap and every kick, every whip, every insult, every spit in the face, he didn't waver. When they nailed the first nail into his wrist, he did not recant. He didn't change his mind with the second nail or the third. As he hung there, he became a curse for us. For cursed is a man who hangs from the tree. 
There he was enduring the cross for the joy set before him. Never wavering, never changing his mind, never backing out, never thinking of our rebellion and saying they don't deserve this. Instead, what did he say? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. How profound is this sacrifice? He bore our sins on that tree. Every last detail of every sin that you've ever committed was poured on Jesus. Isn't this the most astonishing event in human history? Isn't this just the most incredible news that we could possibly offer to the world? This is how God displays his love for us. And though we will never match this level of sacrifice, what John is showing us is this is how it's done. He sacrificed himself for us. Even when it hurts, even when we feel the other person isn't worth it, that we would remember the sacrifice of Christ when we were the most undeserving, and that we would model that. The second thing that we see here, verse 10, God is love, so he initiates In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Notice, let's let's keep this in the right frame of reference here. John opens up saying, Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And then he goes on to explain what God's love means, what God's love looks like, what it does, and how we can see it. And now we're seeing that God is love, so he initiates towards us. What does that mean? It means that that he moved first, that he gave That he didn't wait. Not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us and sent his son for us. Do you see that? Not that we loved God, so therefore God loved us back in return, but that God has first loved us. This has always been the nature of God. All the way in eternity past, when it was him who decided to create the universe, nobody made him create the universe. No one constrained him. No one forced his hand to create the universe or to create it in a particular way. God initiated everything from the very beginning, all the way back to the the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve fell. You remember the story. Adam and Eve both fell. They heard God coming. And what did they do? They ran and ran into the arms of God, right? No. They ran and hid. They were ashamed. And what did God do? Because God is love, he initiated towards them. He moved towards them first and said, where are you? And then what did he do? He covered their sins because they were wearing just fig leaves trying to cover their shame. He killed an animal to make skins for them to wear to cover their shame. And we have the first picture of the atonement 
all the way back in the Garden of Eden. We learn right away that it is God who covers our sins. It's not us. What do we do? We sin and we run. It has been said that God went, that Christ went more willingly to the cross than we go to the throne of grace. And isn't that true? Because what do we do is we run, we hide. I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed of my sin. And we ought to be because we sin against a holy, righteous God. We're right to be ashamed. But what we don't get right is that we run from God instead of running to God. But hallelujah, that God knows this. So He moves first. He initiated reconciliation with mankind by sending His Son. The Israelites can tell you of the initiating love of God. It was God who brought them out of captivity that they might know and serve Him. It was God who sought out David to begin with. It was God who sent His only Son to the earth so that He could make dead men live. God knew that we could not ascend to Him, so He descended to us. He knew that we would never measure up to His glorious standard on our own, so He fulfilled the perfect righteous requirement of the law on our behalf. God initiates. Why? Because God is love. Over and over and over He knew that we could not right our wrongs, so he did it for us. He didn't wait for us to become repentant before sending his son. He didn't wait until we realized that we had done wrong and sinned before God before he sent his son. He didn't wait until it dawned on us that we should probably get right with God before he sent his son. No, God sent his son because he loved us. First, he wasn't reacting to us. He wasn't reacting. He was enacting his plan from the beginning. So powerful. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Notice because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Jesus. Where does it say in there, because you loved God, God sent His Son? It doesn't, does it? It says, because God loved you, He sent His Son. Even when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, when you were the most unlovable that you could possibly be in your entire life, that is when God sent His Son. That is the moment When God said, I love you, my child. He moved first. And so it is today with every sinner who comes to repentance and saving faith. That happens because God has sought you out. 
and brought you into his kingdom. So we ought to love one another this way. Our love towards one another should be initiating in that we don't wait for the other person to be kind first. We don't wait for them to figure it out. We don't wait for them to figure out that I'm offended. We don't wait for them to figure out they shouldn't have said this. We don't wait for them to come and say sorry first. We don't wait for them to get their act right before they are worthy of our love. No, we remember that God loved us when I was the most unlovable I could possibly be. God loved me. And he moved towards me in love to reconcile me back to himself. Therefore, what excuse do I have to not do that with you? I don't, do I? I have none. In fact, what happens is that when I do that, what I'm saying is that my judgments are higher than God. It's a dangerous place to be, my friends. Number three. God is love, so he regenerates. This is from verse 9, section C, which just means if we divided it up into three sections, it's the third section of the verse. Specifically where he says, so that we might live through him. So that we might live through him. That God sent his son. He displayed his love in sending his son, initiating the process of reconciliation, sacrificing his own son, the son sacrificing his life, he did this so that we would come to life. Why? We just read in Ephesians 2 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Not searching for God, not lost in the world, not merely lost in the world rather, but we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That means that we were unable to respond to the beauty of Christ, unable to respond to the grace of God. So what did God do? He made us alive. Of Titus chapter 3 verse 5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Some people might say, what in the world is regeneration? Great question. Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 26 shows us, God speaking, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone How many of you in here, if you had a heart of stone, physically had a heart of stone, how many of you would think that you would still be alive or would you be dead? You would be dead. And this is what Ezekiel's um, description is showing us here. That apart from God, our heart is a heart of stone. Therefore, we are shown to be dead in our trespasses. We can't respond in love. We can't respond in grace, in mercy, or to grace, or to mercy. We hear the message of the gospel, and the words fall on a hard, stony heart. And what do they do? They bounce right off. Until God comes in and fulfills this promise in the life of a believer, what does he say? I will give you a new heart. In a new spirit, 
This is what regeneration looks like. You want to know, am I saved? Ask yourself, has this happened in my life? Have I been given a new heart? Do I have a new spirit within me? Do I now have a heart of flesh? Or do I still have a heart of stone? I will answer the question for you. 2 Corinthians 5.17, you know this one. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Not just a little bit better. Not just who I used to be plus Jesus. But he is a new creation. Listen, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's regeneration. And God loves us. Therefore, He regenerates us. This is all the language of what regeneration looks like. The bringing to life of those who are dead in sin. The perfect example is Lazarus, who was dead in the tomb until Jesus stood outside of his tomb and called out to him and said, Lazarus, come forth. And what happened? Did Lazarus say, no, I think I'm good. I'm taking a nap. No. Lazarus came back to life because he was dead. And he came back to life and walked out of that tomb towards Christ. And this is what happens in regeneration, is that Christ stands outside of your tomb of depravity and says, Sinaidal, come forth. Jonathan, come forth. Debbie, come forth. And you are raised to newness of life to where now you hear the voice and you say, yes and amen, here I come. And that is when you are regenerated and made a new creation in Christ Jesus. Thank God for that. Ephesians 2 shows us that. Go study that. Write that one down. Because it shows us that this all happens because of God's love. That God is love. Therefore, He regenerates us. He makes us new. He gives us a new heart. Why? So that we can love Him and we can love each other. Number four. God is love, so He forgives. This is from the second part of verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This word propitiation is a word lost in modern Christianity. And it is definitely sad. Some of your Bibles don't even say propitiation, depending on what translation you have. But propitiation means to appease the wrath of a deity, to gain their goodwill. In this sense, to appease the wrath of God, to gain His goodwill. Everyone who has not received salvation stands under the wrath of God. We understand this. Everyone who is still under uh, dead in their sin abides under the wrath of God that at any moment God could take their life and they would just experience an eternity of God's wrath. That is the condition apart from God. And this is the condition that we all found ourselves in before Christ. So, when Christ sacrificed His life for us, when He was nailed to the cross, Colossians, if you remember, said that our sins, our record of debt was nailed to the cross. What was happening there is that Christ was standing in our place, that Christ was receiving the punishment 
propitiating for our sins. Instead of you paying for your sins, Jesus paid for them. He became your sin. The scripture says that he who knew no sin became sin, so that through him we might become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? Is that Jesus stood in your place on the cross, taking on your sin, God the Father looked at Jesus as though he were you in all of your sinfulness and poured out his wrath upon his own son. This is propitiation. And what happens now is that when you call upon Jesus as Lord and you put your faith in him, the way that God the Father looked at Jesus as though he were sinful you, he now looks at sinful you as though you were Jesus. Not that you're God, not that you're a deity, but he takes the righteousness of Jesus and puts it in your bank account and says, your slate is wiped clean, my child. I now look at you and treat you and love you through the righteousness of Jesus. That's forgiveness, folks. That is forgiveness to a whole other level. We say, I forgive, but I won't forget. What did God do? He forgave, forgave, and he forgot. Psalm 103, 10 to 14. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. That's a loving God who forgives you in such a way that your sins are further away from his memory than they are from yours. Because you remember. You remember all the sins of yesterday. You remember the lies you told yesterday, maybe this morning. You remember all the broken promises. You remember all the times that you've spoken ill of somebody. You remember all of those things. And I hope that they sit there in your memory as a, as a burning reminder of how ugly and how disgusting sin is. I hope that it doesn't crush you under the weight of condemnation because Jesus was crushed under the weight of that condemnation for you. If you are in Christ today, you are as forgiven as you could possibly ever be. And that is just incredible. Therefore, you and I ought to be quick to forgive each other. If a holy, righteous God can forgive you and me, How dare we not forgive each other? How dare we not quickly initiate forgiveness towards somebody else? You see, the thing about propitiation is that he absorbed the cost. He absorbed the penalty for our wrongdoing. And when we forgive, we are absorbing that wrongdoing on behalf of somebody else. We're saying, you know what, you you might have done me wrong, but I forgive you. 
because I did God wrong and he forgave me. Number five, God is love, so his love cannot be earned. Verse 10, section A, we've already read it. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. God's love is not being reciprocated to you. It's not being returned to you for some good thing that you have done because you have loved him so well. God's love is placed upon you because God is love. Because God has chosen to love you. Romans 5.8 But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God's love is not demonstrated in Him, reciprocating our love towards Him. God's love is not shown to people who merit His love because of their good deeds and excellent level of piety and religious devotion. God's love does not choose an exclusive club of people who have stellar track records of morality. God doesn't love you because you love Him. He doesn't need anything from you. He loves you because He is love. That is irrevocable. Do you understand? You can't earn it and no one can change it. If Christ, God's love has been placed upon you and shown to you through Christ Jesus, you are loved forever. God's love is shown to people who fail and fail and fail and stumble and fall and fail and break promises and fail and fail. God's love is shown to people who tend to be unloving, unmerciful, judgmental, crude, and cruel. What I'm saying is that God's love is shown to people like you and like me. Because that's how we are. So, church, I thought before I, while I was preparing this week, maybe I should prepare a sermon to talk about this new year that's coming up and resolutions that we should make and so on and so forth. But if there's anything that we could be resolved to do as a church in 2021, it would be to love each other this way. That we would be sacrificial in our love. That we would initiate reconciliation. That we would be so quick to forgive one another. That we would remind each other that we are a new creation through the power of the gospel. And that we wouldn't make each other earn our love. That we would freely give it because freely we have been given. What we've been learning over the past few sections combined is that when a person is born again, they are shaped, molded, and formed to look more like Christ and to love more like Christ. I just want you to look at verse 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected. In us. That is to say that no one has ever seen God, but when we 
grow in our loving like him towards one another, we display his characteristics to a watching world. And if God's love towards us is that deep and that great, so should our love for one another be. So let's commit to loving each other this way. Let's not make each other earn our love. Let's weave this into the fabric of this church as we are now rebuilding, as we are replanting or whatever on earth you want to call it. But as we are rebuilding here, let us weave into the fabric of New Life Baptist Church that this is going to be the kind of people we are. Let's stand. Let's pray. Most sovereign God, thank you so much for your word this morning. Thank you for your incredible love shown towards us through Christ. Lord, I pray that we would grow in in our understanding of this love, that we would be able to show this kind of love to one another, and that we would be quick to show each other grace as we're all growing and as we're all learning. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Grace, peace, and mercy to you all.